And welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witz University uh, in Johannesburg, who today is apparently joining us two hours outside of Johannesburg. No joke, with the antelope. Uh, welcome to the show, wherever you are, Kobus. Welcome. How are you? Thank you. So Kobus is at a writing retreat this week, so he is joining us at an undisclosed remote location, but we're uh, fortunate that his 3G cell phone connection is holding up. Uh, today, we are really excited to kind of return to an issue that was extremely popular when we talked about it last year, which is U.S.-China-Africa relations. And the opportunity for us to talk about that is a new RAND uh, Corporation report that was published uh, by Larry Hanauer and Lyle Morris, uh, Chinese Engagement in Africa, Drivers, Reactions, and Implications for U.S. Policy. And we are thrilled today to have both Larry and Lyle join us from RAND Corporation offices in Washington, D.C. A very, very, I think it's a good morning for you. It is. Good morning. Good well, morning. Thank you for so much for joining us. And we're going to first, you know, before we get going into the specifics on the U.S.-China-Africa side, which is, as I said, one of our most popular shows that we ever did. So there's obviously a lot of interest in this subject. Uh, the report is much broader than just the U.S.-China-Africa relationship. Uh, so before we kind of dive into to the trilateral side of it, give us a, br- a brief overview of, of the report and kind of what spurred it. And most importantly, who is your targeted audience for this kind of report? Sure. Well, the, the RAND Corporation is a nonprofit research institution based in Santa Monica, California, actually, with a, a large office in Washington. Uh, and on national security issues, the primary audience for our reports uh, are government policymakers in the executive branch, uh, legislators and congressional staff uh, in Congress, uh, as well as uh, others outside of government in academia or um, the advocacy world uh, as, as a way of informing public debate. So all RAND research is, uh, RAND's mission statement is to, to sub- conduct research uh, for the public benefit. So, uh, so even though our primary audience is policymakers and decision makers, uh, the idea is to produce uh, reports that benefit others as well and shape the public debate as well. But, but toward that end, our report is, you know, it's somewhat of an overview of the major issues, but it, it, it's, it's very policy focused, uh, given that we want our primary audiences to have information they can use to then uh, shape their decisions regarding China and Africa and the Chinese-African relationship. And what I'll have and to can you s- give us an an sorry to interrupt. Can you give us an idea of of um, why you decided to do the report now? Well, it seems that there's there's growing attention being paid to the issue, uh, not necessarily in government, but certainly in the community of academics and advocates and others um, who are beginning to focus more on the role of not just China but other outside actors, Russia. Um, Brazil, Turkey, and others in Africa. Uh, And so we thought that this was an idea that was ripe to bring to the attention of policymakers um, so that they can give it consideration as as the U.S. shapes its own policy toward Africa. So it's not that there was any particular event that drove this uh, onto the agenda, but rather that it's it's an issue that is clearly getting more and more attention, is clearly more and more relevant uh, to U.S. policy in Africa, um, and probably something that is not really on policymakers' radar screens. Um, I mean, as, as we saw, for example, during the, the summit meeting between President Obama and Xi Jinping a few months ago, uh, you know, Africa wasn't on their agenda. I mean, the U.S. and China have so many issues on their bilateral agenda that 
that discussing Chinese policy in Africa just doesn't um, it doesn't get onto the program. Uh, and we think it probably should. And so this was a way to help help bring attention to the issue among policymakers. So while the report does focus, again, as I mentioned at the top, on the, the broad relationship between the U.S., China, and Africa, it's also very nuanced. And one of the things I really liked about the report was how in the beginning you talk about the the lack of nuance that media coverage often has when it covers China, Africa. It's very binary. Oftentimes, you know, when you read the Chinese press, it's the Chinese can do no wrong in Africa. And when you read the Western press, there's a narrative of, you know, there's that, that China is challenging the status quo. China is trying to upset the status quo. China is, is basically, you know, just challenging in aid and economy. And it's usually a very negative kind of tone to it. So I, I, I compliment you on the, the nuance that you brought to it. Let's kind of dive into the U.S. policy side of it. Um, is China a competitor to the U.S. in Africa? Uh, our, our conclusion is that uh, the U.S. and China are not strategic competitors in Africa. Um, I mean, as you said, you know, the narrative is this: is that China is this rapacious neo-colonial power that is just trying to lock up natural resources, uh, oil, minerals, and others, uh, and essentially take them off world markets where the U.S. and other countries can't access them. Um, and and that's just simply not true. I mean, even you know, oil in particular is a global commodity, so. Uh, you know, even if the Chinese are putting it on a ship and and uh, and taking it directly to China, uh, that just means that there's more oil on a global market, um, which you know, potentially could even contribute to lower prices, which would be in the U.S. interest. So, so even there, you know, in the the, the typical conventional wisdom about China locking up resources, we think that's that's a false narrative that that China and the U.S. really aren't competing over those resources. And and besides, even a Chinese oil company isn't doing any more to lock up oil. Uh, when it when it makes a deal to drill somewhere, then Exxon is or Total is when they make a deal to to, to drill somewhere. So so that's really a false narrative. But but more broadly, um, this is not a Cold War sort of situation uh, as we had with the Soviet Union in the fifties and sixties, where the two countries are competing for access and influence uh, in a zero sum game where you know African countries are in one camp or another camp uh, and thus denied territory to the other. Um, we are not competing for that kind of access and influence. Um, really, in a nutshell, we have we actually have similar interests. Um, I mean, both U.S. and China want continued access to African resources, oil and minerals and, and other things. Uh, both countries share a desire for Africans to be more prosperous, uh, uh, experience economic development and better health care, better human development. Um, and both countries want stability and security in Africa, although for slightly different reasons, and we can talk about that later. Um, and both countries, of course, want access to African markets, although China, for the most part, sells consumer goods and the U.S. sells primarily higher-end products uh, and services. It's just that the U.S. and China use different means of advancing these interests. I mean, the, the U.S. emphasis is programs, aid, and otherwise that try to promote good governance, uh, human development, like healthcare and education, uh, capacity building, and and when the U.S. tries to promote investment, which it doesn't really do enough of, it's focused on, of course, private sector-led investment. The Chinese emphasis is really on state-backed trade and investment with state-owned enterprises focused on large uh, infrastructure projects and, and large um, uh, industrial projects. Um, and they take a hands-off approach uh, uh, toward aid and, and investment uh, where they don't they don't lecture countries on good governance and transparency and other things. So, uh, really, at a strategic level, 
we have similar interests in Africa, access to resources, economic development, stability and security and trade. We just go about achieving those interests in different ways. Um, to which extent do you feel that this zero-sum um, game narrative is, however, also also crops up in um, in American government circles? I particularly, I'm, I'm thinking of um, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and then also um, her successor John Kerry. Both made veiled and not so veiled, you know, kind of references to to Africa the, you know, that Africa needs to be careful of China. Um, so, so do do you feel that that this at the very top echelons of, of the State Department, this um, that the idea of, of of shared ideas of shared goals in Africa is, is really recognized. Um, I mean, there's some truth to those statements. Um, you know, Chinese engagement does run counter to what the U.S. wants to achieve in some ways, but it's not really at a strategic level. It's more at the the, the operational policy execution level. You know, for example, China's no strings attached approach to aid and investment. Um, undermines to some extent what the U.S. is trying to achieve with its aid and uh, with its aid programs to promote good governance and transparency. Um, and uh, you know, China's sales of conventional weapons or small arms in certain countries contributes to uh, the destabilization in conflict zones um, where we're trying to promote more um, stability. That said, um, you know, the United States also provides aid and investment to countries that uh, don't necessarily make the greatest decisions. Um, the U.S. also sells weapons and provides military assistance to countries that don't have the greatest records of uh, uh, human rights and democratization. So, uh, you know, so it, 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 the, those issues go both ways. But, um, but I think there is still a sense that China, China's engagement is something to be concerned about because many of its policy initiatives do uh, run counter to some of the policy objectives that the U.S. is trying to achieve. I would note, though, that although some senior officials like Secretary of State Hillary Clinton made comments to that end, when President Obama was in Africa last year uh, and gave a speech, um, he was asked about China and he said, you know, China is not a competitor. The more, the merrier. The more um, countries that are here investing and creating jobs and building infrastructure, the better that is for Africans. So, so I, again, even you know, President Obama recognized at that level that Chinese contributions to infrastructure construction and economic development have the potential uh, to have a very positive impact. Um, it's just you know there are areas where what China is doing uh, is is somewhat in conflict with the policies we're trying to achieve as well. Yeah, but isn't it uh, fair that you know powers as large and diverse with large and diverse interests as the United States and China do speak out of both sides of their mouths on both sides? So on the one hand, while the Chinese themselves. Uh, Certainly, have a lot of you know problems in Africa. You know, when it comes to labor, it comes to you know environmental issues and whatnot. The Americans themselves, it does seem like there's a sense of hypocrisy as well. And, and Howard French, who's the professor at Columbia, former New York Times reporter, he pointed out that uh, the United States support of Burkina Faso's Blase Compare and Yoweri Museveni in Uganda. Both have been in power for 25 and 26 years, and America's you know really expansion of its military agenda in Africa. Uh, overwhelm some of the, you know, beautiful talk on political reform and democracy. And so I guess my frustration when I hear the U.S. policymakers talk about civil society advancement, you know, aid and, and, and political reform, and then at the other side, you know, building drone bases, building military relationships that run counter to a lot of the democratic ideals that the United States stands for seems hypocritical to me. So I guess when you start raising some of these issues in place like Washington, what's the response that you get? 
Well, I think the sense in Washington is that is that all governments have a multiplicity of interests um, and that, you know, certainly there are some U.S. government uh, officials who are criticizing um, President Museveni in Uganda, for example, for the recent uh, anti-gay laws that he, he just signed. But that's not war. policy, though. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of people criticizing, but that doesn't necessarily mean on the policy side it's changing. We well, it does, trans- it does translate into policy when, when, when the government starts talking about uh, cutting off certain types of foreign aid, uh, perhaps limiting certain types of high-level exchanges or engagement. Um, so, I mean, that, the, the anti-gay laws in Uganda are a good example because they could lead to uh, some areas of reduced engagement by the United States as a means of protest. But at the same time, the U.S. is continuing to provide military assistance to the Ugandans uh, as part of the effort to uh, to go after the Lord's Resistance Army, uh, so uh, so you know the U.S. has has two sets of interests here. One is in human rights and human development, uh, and in that arena, the U.S. may I don't want to say impose sanctions on Uganda, but but perhaps pull back its engagement. Um, and uh, and then the U.S. also has security interests, where collaboration with the Ugandan military uh, is in both countries' interests, and that cooperation seems likely to continue. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, if, if everything were so black and white, as you say, um, we would have good guys and bad guys, and we would only cooperate with the good guys. And frankly, there aren't all that many of them in the world. <laughs> Um, you mentioned the, the issue of, of military engagement, um, and that, that was one of the, the aspects which I found very interesting in your report, uh, the different kinds of military engagement on both the, the Chinese and African sides with, with African government, the Chinese and American sides on, with African governments. I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about that and how military engagement from China and America differ um, in relation to Africa. I could take a stab at the China side. I mean, uh, for for Chinese side, they, they've been definitely increasing their engagement in the through the UN Security Council through uh, peacekeeping troops. Uh, there's definitely more engagement for the Chinese military uh, attaches in Africa. Uh, but if you look, if you compare the Chinese side to to the U.S., it's it's very different. I mean, China does not have an Africom, for example, for for a variety of reasons. Uh, China's policy on non interference basically precludes China from really how you know for example establishing bases in africa so if you look at uh the u.s for example that china is still you know uh it's kind of apples and oranges um but that said china has uh, greatly um increased its military engagement with africa for example the um uh, the the gulf of aden is a good example of that and, and the peacekeeping troops for example for in mali so i think at the at the margins uh, you see china kind of Increasing its engagement, but uh, you're not you're, you're not talking about uh, the, the the kind of the same the, the, the systematic approach that the U.S. has. Yeah, I think the 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 issue is that the U.S. and China, although both want to see security and stability in Africa, both want to see that for very different reasons. China's uh, interest in stability in in Africa is primarily oriented toward. Uh, protecting its investments and its economic opportunities. I mean, they they want to see sufficient stability so that they can continue to uh, to promote uh, mining and drilling and factory opening and uh, and trade. Uh, and so, for for China, really, security on the continent is about facilitating Chinese business and investment. The United States has a much broader view of security interests uh, in Africa as well as in other countries. Uh, we're concerned about about the potential for civil conflict and casualties and human rights violations. We're concerned about uh, terrorist groups uh, finding safe haven in countries that have problems with uh, with governance. Uh, 
Um, and the U.S. military is eager to have uh, physical access uh, for U.S. forces, whether it's to combat terrorism or, uh, or just project power through the kinds of um, civil affairs programs, for example, that CJTF HOA does out of Djibouti. So the U.S. has you know, the, the CJTF HOA uh, Camp Lemonnier base in Djibouti, but then also smaller deployments all around the continent, um, usually at first on a somewhat transactional basis. Um, but that kind of power projection is really a key element of U.S. defense strategy in Africa. So, uh, but, the, the, but Chinese security policy really changed, I think, as a result of the Sudan um, uh, crisis, I guess, or, or discussions over the extent to which Chinese military sales, which it engages in because uh, as part of its non-interference policy, it thinks every sovereign state has the right to buy weapons. Um, but that changed their perspective a little bit. It seemed to make them realize that they're going to have to be a more constructive player on security issues if they're going to want to sustain their economic engagement. And that's when we saw China become much more involved in UN peacekeeping missions. Um, uh, in, and for the most part, they were sending logisticians and observers and civilian police. But they just a few months ago sent its first their first combat troops to the peacekeeping mission in Mali, which is a, a, seemed like a, a marked change. But clearly, their willingness to participate in peacekeeping missions under the UN umbrella mitigates, to some extent, their concerns about non-interference. You know, they're willing to participate in a security operation in the country if it has that international legitimacy of a UN Security Council resolution or an African Union mission, uh, but not uh, on a bilateral basis like the U.S. does throughout the continent. Well, I guess that brings up a very interesting point here that the United I, – I, I suspect that the Chinese might take issue with your assessment that – uh, you know, the, the Chinese military objectives in Africa are narrowly kind of targeted at preserving their economic interests or at least stability around their economic interests when the Chinese would tell you that they've got more peacekeeping uh, investments and peacekeepers in Africa than any other member of the UN Security Council. Uh, and they would tell you that the uh, multilateral, uh, multinational uh, anti-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia, the deployments in Liberia, the deployments in the DRC, and in uh, Mali, where they've got combat troops, uh, are not related to their investments in any way. So I guess I'm, I'm curious about the perceptions among Africans towards you know, Chinese military, and also just get your response uh, about you know, the division that you seem to be making between UN PKO operations and as well as their own narrow targeted uh, military objectives in Africa. I think uh, China's perspective on the PKO operations and, and its involvement really is part of a broader strategy to, to engage more proactively on the continent. And, it's, and you see that in the economic realm, you see that in the, in the security realm. But at the end of the day, I mean, China, the reason why China is so active in the, in the PKO operations is because it gives it experience, you know, not just in Africa, but internationally, uh, that it could use uh, for its own training and doctrine back at home on the mainland. Um, so I think there's kind of a dual strategy there on the one hand. Yes, it is. It is for Africa. It is to help stabilize Africa. It does have... Um, Kind of a, a knock-on effect in the sense that it gives Chinese well now Chinese combat troops in Mali, uh, but just Chinese uh, peacekeeping uh, presence in general uh, more combat experience in complex zones that they could then use for their own training and military doctrine back at home. Well, and also one one of the things we concluded in our report was that 
um, in part because of a generally hostile response at a popular level, grassroots level, to Chinese engagement. And that has a wide range of issues, you know, from labor practices and, and um, uh, you know, flooding the market with goods that then undermine African industries. But because Africans reacted somewhat hostily to Chinese engagement overall, China made a decision that it needed to uh, engage somewhat more constructively, or at least present itself as engaging more constructively, to maintain sustainable economic involvement in the continent. And so they undertook a range of initiatives from you know, people-to-people exchanges and a, and a brand new media hub in Nairobi and a range of soft power efforts. They promised more win-win commercial deals to, to mitigate the criticism that uh, China is essentially a big economic bully that uh, you know gets African countries to to give away the goods in lopsided deals, and peacekeeping participation is part of that. It's part of essentially a soft power uh, presentation of China as a as a benign actor, as a constructive actor in the continent, rather than as uh, you know a, a purely a neo-colonial power that's there to make money. So, um, so, so China's contributions to peacekeeping missions has all the military benefits uh, that, that Lyle just outlined, but also more of a political strategic benefit because it enables Beijing to present itself as a more constructive actor throughout the continent. One of the very interesting aspects of, of, of the report for me was was your point that um, that China is actually quite responsive to criticism from Africa and that there is a dynamic relationship between the two. Um, how would you contrast that to the U.S.'s relationship to Africa? Is the U.S. Um, res- also responsive to criticism from Africa? My feeling is that the, it's not as much. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's one of our one of our kind of key takeaways from the report was was how China um, has adjusted its policies towards Africa. And really, I want to point out that China is, from what we've seen, um, adjusting its policy first just through policy documents, through rhetoric, right? I mean, we're not seeing a whole lot of change on the ground yet, but we think that these changes in rhetoric, for example, uh, in security, uh, in, you know, that the last two FOCACs talked about sustainability and economic relations, uh, and then the the recent... um, the, the 2012 FOCAC, the Initiative on China-Africa Cooperative Partnership for Peace and Security. Those kind of issues, uh, I think, point to a broader kind of reconsideration of Chinese strategy in Africa, which is based primarily on feedback from Africans. I think that China is listening to Africans. I think it is trying to adjust its policy. Um, but for the U.S. side, I'll, I'll kind of let Larry take that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the U.S. does have more of a give-and-take as a rule with countries, um, but uh, I think the, the greatest example of U.S. responsiveness is the uh, are the Power Africa and Trade Africa initiatives that President Obama announced uh, in his trip to the continent last summer. Uh, that is or that's a that was a big shift. I mean, it 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 changed the the dialogue, the U.S. African dialogue from one that was dominated by questions of economic aid and good governance and transparency to one that is focused much more on private investment. Um, one of the things that we found in our report is that, uh, that we've concluded is that uh, private U.S. investment has the potential not just to sort of change the, um, the United States uh, engagement on the continent, but also to promote better Chinese behavior and more constructive Chinese behavior. Um, because by uh, by creating competition, essentially, for the Chinese companies that are building infrastructure or building factories, um, it, the Chinese are going to have to sort of up their game and offer better deals for Africans that are that are less lopsided. 
Um, and the the benefits of American investment, whether it's more reliable power or better infrastructure or whatnot, will also empower African countries to to demand those some of those changes uh, from China themselves. Um, and, and given that we concluded in our report that the Chinese are responsive to criticisms from the continent uh, and will change their engagement because of the feedback they get from the continent, we think that American investment, if it enables African countries to demand a better deal, um, will in turn help promote more constructive Chinese economic engagement and, and economic development engagement and and, um, and its policies on the continent. Yeah, but you're speaking as if they're equals here. And, and let's talk about the Power Africa. That was a $7 billion deal for for a, a multitude of Southern African states. You know, that same week that Obama announced uh, that $7 billion power deal, China announced a $10 billion deal just for Liberia. And I thought that was an interesting contrast in scale here. And, and what's interesting for me is that you highlighted in the report that the Chinese political system and the American political and economic system are completely incompatible with one another. So the Chinese can line up an investment deal with the state-owned companies, with the policy framework, with the diplomatic framework. Everything is lined up perfectly there. They can get the banks to loan at 2%, you know, over a 50-year term. You know, Obama can't go to Bank of America and say, give them a, a loan at 2%, you know, and, and, and force them to do anything. Can't tell General Electric to do anything. I have a good friend of mine who works uh, for GE Power Systems and says he hasn't, had, he hasn't been able to close a deal in North Africa in years because the Chinese come in and undercut at 50%. And so I'm just wondering if if it's really, I mean, could, the Americans, can they compete and do they want to compete because their shareholders don't want to necessarily get into a price war? And if Huawei is any indication as to what it can do to companies like Alcatel and Cisco, uh, it doesn't seem like the Americans can compete in a market like Africa. Right. Well, but when you say compete, you're you're suggesting that again, this is a zero sum game. No, I'm suggesting giving African consumers and and you know both on the choice what you talked about. So American products and Chinese products competing against each other for better service and better quality, but the American products are going to be undercut by Chinese financing and Chinese low cost uh, products. Yeah, to some extent that's true. Um, I mean, as you said, you know, China, it's much easier for Chinese state-owned enterprises, uh, which are much more vertically integrated than the typical American large enterprise, to line up the, the financing, um, the, uh, you know, let's say the, the mining deal, but also the railroad and road construction deal to get the, the, the minerals to port and the port construction deal to improve the port access for ships. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you're right there. To some extent, it's much easier for large Chinese enterprises with state backing um, to, uh, to sort of put together a whole deal. Whereas American companies, you know, you might find an American mining company that's willing to build a mine. But if there's no adequate rail or road infrastructure, then you need to find a separate American company to build that. Um, so, so to some extent, that is harder. Um, the political risk is also such that um, Chinese, Chinese entities um, can much more easily take on that risk because of their state subsidies uh, and because to some extent they're acting to promote state objectives. Right? They can go into places like um, Eastern Congo, which is a very high-risk environment and requires a lot of investment because they've got subsidies that enable them to mitigate the, the expense uh, and they're coordinating to some degree with the state that wants them to be there. An American company is not likely to invest in the Eastern Congo where their investment can be nationalized or taken over or, or have to be abandoned at a moment's notice. So, so yes, they're, you know, they're, they're competing in different ways, but American companies aren't going to be interested in all the same opportunities that Chinese companies are. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the other thing is that for the most part, Chinese and American companies are competing in different sectors. Um, China is much more heavily involved in infrastructure uh, and heavy industry than U.S. companies are. Uh, and in part, that's because of the, the investment required um, and the risk, which, again, American companies have to sell to their shareholders. Um, Chinese state-owned enterprises don't. Um, and China is much more involved in uh, consumer goods. I mean, China exports to Africa uh, enormous amounts of inexpensive consumer goods, um, which the U.S. doesn't really produce. I mean, U.S. exports to Africa are much more higher-end higher products, higher-tech products and services. So, um, so there isn't as much direct competition there as, as it might seem. And the, the, Eric, the one thing I would add is that I think just to clarify our report, I mean, we're, we're not saying I think it's I think it's important to acknowledge that in some ways the U.S. Ha- does have a strategic disadvantage in Africa. We don't have we can't rally the resources in the same way that China can. So I think we have to acknowledge that. But I think mm-hmm. one of the one of the our conclusions that we're, we're trying to we're trying to say is the more that the U.S. could promote investment in Africa, the better it helps U.S. It helps China. It helps Africans. So. It, it is true that, like the, the example you gave of the Power Africa, was basically you know superseded quickly by China. But uh, the more, the better, I guess. Is what we were, we were trying to say. Well, and also, you, know, you made the point that that China is able to offer concessional loans um, or even interest-free loans that are paid back over time with you know exports of natural resources, and that President Obama can't tell Bank of America go give some African country a concessional loan. But what the U.S. government can do is promote American investment by allocating funds to the Trade and Development Agency, the overseas, TDA, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, both of which have invested uh, or have dedicated minuscule amounts of money to promoting American investment in Africa. Um, part of America, part of, of President Obama's pledge was that TDA and OPIC would get more funding to support American investments in Africa. We haven't seen what that's going to look like yet um, or, or what the results will be yet, but that was an important step uh, in, in in having the government encourage American private investment through concrete measures uh, like you know loan guarantees or feasibility studies or, or whatever they're going to go do um, that hadn't really been done before or had been done before only in very limited amounts. One of the very interesting kind of aspects of your report was also, you know, the related point that um, that as China is increasing its public diplomacy, the 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 U.S. is actually decreasing its public diplomacy organs on on the continent. Um, can you? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how you foresee it's you know kind of these these two models of development and two models of of engagement with Africa going in the future. Do do you foresee a kind of a a decrease of 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 US influence um or is would would that be you know kind of oversimplifying the the situation well i'll start off just quickly with the china side i think uh you have seen a a, a vast increase in the amount of uh kind of public diplomacy tools that china is pushing uh from media culture confucius institutes uh people people exchanges you see a lot more people of people exchanges on the china side i think that's really important um and I think that's just part of China trying to push more of a grassroots uh, engagement strategy in Africa that, that for for years has been dominated by state-to-state ties. Um, now, whether or not that's paying dividends for China is a, is a question. I, I, I have not seen indications that its soft power push is necessarily paying huge dividends. I think it's going to be a long-term strategy. But um, so, But for the U.S. side, I'll let Larry yeah. take that. 
I mean, China, but again, one of the things we found in the report was that, you know, China had always been engaged in people-to-people exchanges and training programs, but as part of this greater soft power push um, to mitigate popular opposition to Chinese engagement, they made pledges at the recent FOCAC and, and bilateral meetings to, to really ramp up their programs. I mean, they promised, for example, to train 30,000 Africans in China, offer 18,000 scholarships. They uh, expanded exchange programs for young people, for journalists, uh, an exchange between the Chinese and African think tanks. Um, and they spent something like $6 billion to fund uh, a new CCTV um, studio in Nairobi to develop English language media, um, which would help shape grassroots perception uh, of China. And so they've really invested heavily in these soft power initiatives. On the U.S. side, I mean, my, I haven't seen the budget numbers uh, for global programs um, for cultural exchanges and those sorts of things. But for the most part, they're declining, as are a lot of other um, cultural initiatives and foreign aid programs. And, and the U.S. has a global effort in this regard. And African exchanges have never necessarily been at the top of that, that priority list. So, you know, the U.S. has a much more limited cultural presence in the continent, um, both physically through American centers, a lot of which have been closed, um, and American libraries, a lot of which have been closed. Um, and we simply don't bring that many people, that many Africans, to the United States for training um, or exchange programs. Now, that said, um, when we were talking with uh, Ambassador David Shin, who was the, uh, our peer reviewer for this report, actually, uh, he's a George Washington University professor who's former ambassador to Ethiopia and uh, Burkina Faso. He made the comment that, you know, Chinese opera can never c- compete with Hollywood. So... You know, although China is being much more aggressive in these soft power initiatives, there's always the sort of cultural allure of Hollywood movies or American culture uh, or or what are English sites on the Internet or whatever. And and that's something that China is going to have a hard time appealing to or, or countering. Yeah, but here I listen. I, I live here in Vietnam and I'll tell you right now that Hollywood ain't the game here. It is all <laughs> about Korea. It's all about K-pop, K-wave, yeah. K-everything. So this idea that the Americans <laughs> have that Hollywood is going to carry the day for them in soft power, uh, if you come to Asia, you'll see that the biggest movies and the biggest celebrities and what the kids are reading online and whatnot is all about the Korean soap operas, Korean dramas, Korean movies, Korean videos and whatnot. So it just it's not China, but it just shows that that is not a, a permanent uh, wall of, of protection that the Americans can count on. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, popular culture or pop trends change over time. Uh, you know, Hollywood's carried the ball for American culture for a long time. And as, as you know, as other countries produce their own movies and their sure. own TV shows and their own cultural outreach programs, that's, that's going to compete. Um, in fact, one of the most popular uh, TV shows in a handful of, of, um, of African countries is a Chinese soap opera. Um, that highlights sort of the Chinese commitment to, I, I haven't seen it myself, but highlights the commitment to Chinese family and it presents Chinese family life in sort of a much more, you know, average person, ordinary family kind of way that is designed in part to appeal to, to African audiences. So, you know, as, as other countries like China uh, or maybe Korea develop those sort of cultural outreach programs, they too will get popular. Um, and they will compete with with American initiatives. Yeah. Well, let me wrap this up just with both of you to give us, you know, we'll skip right to the end. Spoiler alert here. What are your conclusions going forward? What do you know, as you wrapped up this report, what were some of the assessments that you made with respect to U.S.-China-Africa relations? 
Well, I think some of the main ones were, for example, that um, that if the U.S. wants to encourage China to behave more constructively in Africa, economically, from a security perspective, or, or what have you, um, it's not going to be effective if the U.S. tries to do that directly with China. As I said before, there there are too many other issues on the bilateral U.S.-Chinese agenda for Africa to to rise to the top. Um, and uh, and so that kind of bilateral dialogue simply isn't going to do much. The more effective way is to empower African governments and African civil society to demand uh, more constructive Chinese behavior themselves. China has demonstrated it's willing to respond to uh, to popular uh, opposition to its initiatives and 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 change its programs. Um, and so U.S. Uh, greater U.S. investments, uh, private sector investment, would change the market environment in which Chinese entities have to compete, and so they would have to offer uh, commercial deals that are more advantageous to Africans, improve labor standards, and take other steps that would be more constructive. Uh, and so the U.S. really needs to promote policies that cultivate economic growth, uh, U.S. investment, um, and, uh, and and try to create more competitive markets, um, as well as bolster programs that are focused on increasing transparency because it's the lack of transparency in a lot of African countries that enables Chinese companies to come in and sort of create sweetheart deals or take advantage of corrupt officials or, or whatever that might be. Well, the, re- the report is Chinese engagement in Africa, drivers, reactions, and implications for U.S. policy. Again, part of the target audience for this uh, is, uh, is, is our politi- policymakers in Washington, and God, I hope that they read this because they really need it. It's an excellent report. It's also a good report for students uh, and pretty much anybody who wants a really broad overview of U.S.-China-Africa relations, the history of China, Chinese engagement on the continent. Again, it was uh, peer-reviewed by David Shin, Ambassador David Shin, who has been a guest on our show uh, in the past and who's very well-respected in the community of uh, Sino-African scholarship. So uh, 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 just kudos to both of you for a uh, an excellently excellent report uh you know larry hanauer and lyle morris thank you so much for joining us on the show today if people want to follow what you're doing are are either one of you engaged in social media or uh ways that people can follow your reading and writing uh yes um we uh i think we both tweet um no all right i'm i tweet occasionally um on these issues and others uh my uh, twitter handle is at larry hanauer um, you can also follow Rand Publications in general at uh, at Rand Corporation, uh, and I would note too that um, that this report, this China Africa report, is available for free for free download uh, on the Rand website at rand.org. All 137 pages of it, so I think it's a it's a worthwhile read, and it's free. So there you go. You don't hear that too often. Hey, there's Kobe's, also, oh, go there's ahead. also an accompanying uh, an accompanying four page research brief. So for those who don't want to make through it through the 120 odd pages or even the summary, Rand produced a glossy four page uh, research brief that summarizes the key points. That's also downloadable for free on Rand.org, uh, and its slightly different title is China in Africa. Implications of a deepening relationship. Nice. So it's really a summary of the executive summary. Ideal for our students in their spring semester this year who are going to cram for their papers on China, Africa, and need to just throw in a couple rand quotes in there very quickly. Hey, uh, Kobus, <laughs> if people want to follow you on the web, what's the best way they can stay in touch? You'll see me on our, on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And also, um, I'm on Twitter at Sadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Kobus and I are updating the Facebook page almost 18 hours a day. Lyle and Larry, I hope you're following the China Africa Project on Facebook. We've got over 165,000 followers now all over the world. 
uh, and, and it's just a great discussion. Uh, once again, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at eolander and uh, tweeting the top China Africa stories almost every day. We're also on Google+. And if you'd like to follow this podcast, uh, iTunes is by far the best way, but we're also on Stitcher, on SoundCloud. If you've got a mobile phone, a smartphone, you can download our app on Android and Apple. So that's it for this week. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.